So if you don't understand the way in which your community has been stripped of resources that have historically been given to other hmm. communities, if you don't understand, uh, you know, it's not necessarily that a student has to understand the nuances of property tax or the <laughs> nuances of redlining and the history of discrimination in the New Deal, but they should understand that the reason that there are no uh, not many grocery stores in that community, mm. the reason that the projects or the homes in that community look the way that they do, the reason that the school looks the way that it does is not because of a sort of cultural deficit that exists with the folks in those communities, but it's instead because of like very real public policy and political decisions that have been made by people that have deprioritized that community as it compares to its counterparts. <laughs> What's up, everyone, and welcome to Chapter 27 of the Let's Give a Damn podcast. It's a rainy day here in East Tennessee, where I am at the moment, and I couldn't be more excited because it reminds me a little bit of my true love and home of four years, the Pacific Northwest. I love it. I miss it. And I'm feeling a little bit at home today. Before we get into introducing today's guest, I want to continue to encourage you to give toward the relief efforts happening all over Texas right now as a result of the devastating Hurricane Harvey. Last week, I mentioned my friends at Legacy Collective. They're doing great work. I continue to encourage you to give money to what they're doing, but I wanted to add another option for you. My friends at Preemptive Love Coalition. They are doing incredible work on the ground right now in Texas. And what Preemptive Love Coalition is really good at, among many other things, is they see what other people miss. So I know right now they are meeting needs that are otherwise going unmet. That's what they're good at. So if you still have money left over that you would like to donate to relief efforts happening in Texas, go to one of two places or both, legacycollective.org forward slash Harvey or preemptivelove.org forward slash Harvey. And I just said something that I want to retract. I just said, if you have any money left over, the reality is even if you don't have a lot of money, or money that you would consider left over, still give, you have more than many of the people that have lost everything. It is good to give out of our, sometimes our own poverty, our own not having what we need. So give until it hurts a little bit. That's good for us. Now on to today's guest. My guest today is the intelligent and thoughtful Clint Smith. Clint and I met at Busboys and Poets a coffee shop and bookstore in the Tacoma neighborhood of Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago to record this conversation. Side note, I always try to point out where I'm recording these conversations just to give you all a little context. I don't have a studio, and I definitely don't have a studio when I travel to go to the people I'm interviewing. So I like to give you a little framework so you can imagine the kind of place where we're recording these conversations. So hopefully that helps. We're in the back room, a back room, at Busboys and Poets, Washington, D.C. Anyway, Clint is a writer, teacher, poet, and doctoral candidate in education at Harvard University, concentrating on culture, institutions, and society. He has written for many major publications and his two TED Talks, The Danger of Silence and How to Raise a Black Son in America, collectively have been viewed more than five million times. We talk about growing up in America as a black boy. We talk about mass incarceration, 
how to live responsibly in this volatile political climate, and so much more. I can't wait for you to hear it. So I will shut up. Let's get right into it. Without further ado, my name is Nick LaPara, and this is my conversation with Clint Smith. First of all, thank you so much for being here. Of course. I'm really, really excited. Uh, a bunch of my friends, you may have seen them respond to the tweet that I had tweeted you. They're really excited about this as well. Yeah. Um, I've admired, uh, you know, your work and your contribution to the internets for, you know, is quite some time. And yeah, just really grateful for you. So I'm excited to get to talk about this in the context of this Let's Give a Damn podcast. Definitely. Um, so I have so many places I want to go, but let's start with your TED Talks. Um, you can, yeah, feel free to, feel free to interrupt. Um, we need to get this, this man his chai latte. I appreciate it. Um, Thank you. Um, let's start with the TED Talks. Yep. Um, I actually just rewatched them both this morning just to get re-inspired and to hear, you know, hear the words again. Um, 5.6 million collective views between the two of them. A lot of people have seen the, shared them. They've impacted a lot of people, obviously. Yeah. Um, a lot of TED Talks get that many views, but there's so many more that never get there. Mm. So it's, it has resonated with people. So tell me, just talk uh, briefly about uh, how, to raise, how to raise a black son in America, right? Yeah. And you just, you just told me in the, a few seconds ago, you just had your son, right? Yeah. So that is obviously about your relationship with your parents. Right. But now it's going to take a whole different outlook for yourself because right. things have probably things have drastically changed since you were a kid and not changed at all right. in a lot of ways. So talk about how that came about and um, how that, how it's affected people and then how you're thinking through it with your own son now. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. So I was raised in a very mixed race, mixed income community in New Orleans. I had black friends, white friends, Asian friends. It was like the Disney Channel. It was great. Um, you know, we were riding our bikes with theme music playing in the background and our hair blowing in the oh, wind. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> so there was a time when you had hair then there was back okay, in the day, okay. you know, and then, you know, blowing in the wind is a generous rendering yes. of, of what, what took place. Uh, but my dad was always very clear. My dad would say, you know, I love that you have such a diverse group of friends. This is why we moved to this neighborhood. This is why we sent you to the school, but you have to understand that the implications for the decisions that you make might be very different for you than they are for your other friends. And when you're a kid, you don't understand that when you're a kid, you're just like, you're the mean dad, you're the strict dad. Mm. Why can't you be more like Tommy's dad? He's like, well, Tommy doesn't live in this house. And then the conversation is done because your dad thinks he's Denzel Washington. It's very dramatic with his <laughs> statements. Um, and so I was, all, I was very much raised with this idea that the, the nature of my skin had very different implications for my life than it did for my non-black friends. Um, and that when you're young, you, you understand it, but it, it takes a sort of moment for it to become concretized. And for me that happened as an adult um, when Tamir Rice was killed. So Tamir Rice, as many of us mm, know, the 12-year-old yeah. boy who was killed in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, shot with a toy gun, or shot for having a toy gun in a park in an open carry state, no one else around him. Almost immediately. Almost within two, two seconds of the cops pulling up. And so obviously multiple layers of issues to that case. And for me, that, that moment really made real and made concrete the fear that my parents had their entire lives, the reason that I wasn't able to play with Nerf guns or water guns outside, the reason I wasn't able to, um, that they told me to take my hood off uh, as soon as the sun went down and all of these different things that felt very specific to 
uh, some, me and some of my other friends, while my, my white friends uh, were not experiencing that same mm -hmm. iteration of the talk, right? The talk looked very different in that community. Uh, and so part of what I wanted to do, this was that, that TED Talk happened in a moment where, you know, there was, felt like every week was a, a young black man or a woman who was being killed or boy or girl who was being killed at the hands of police, um, who was unarmed. And, and I wanted to uh, reflect on, I was also in the midst of writing my own book, sort of reflecting as on a sort of coming of age as a young black man, um, experiencing what I call the sort of marathon of cognitive dissonance that it is to grow up as a young black person mm -hmm. in this country. How does one grow up in a home in which you feel loved, affirmed, and celebrated, and then go out into a world in which you are constantly rendered a caricature of someone else's fear? Uh, and that was the sort of essence of the talk that my parents had with me as a kid, is that like, you know, the world is going to see you in this way uh, many people in the world are going to see you in this way, but you have to understand that that is not because of anything that you have done uh, to deserve that. It is instead because they are projecting their own fear onto you. Um, and and so that TED Talk was exploring that. Now, you know, as a as a father of a black son, um, I think a lot about this in in terms of like how is the conversation going to be similar or, or different than the conversation that my own father had with me. And there was a moment a few weeks ago um, where we had like, you know, we were in the, his mom and I were uh, walking around the street, you know, in the neighborhoods, very stroller friendly area. Um, and we saw what might, must have been uh, 11 or 12 year old, uh, two 11, 12 year old little black boys um, with a dog. And they were like, you know, running around and like being kids and, um, like joking and yelling at each other. And I was thinking about how, and it was also this moment where so many people were like passing us up and looking in the stroll and saying, that boy is adorable, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about the moment that uh, a young black boy goes from being adorable to, uh, to dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. And the, what is that line? What is that threshold? What is it that makes it so that those boys I saw across the street um, my, are not going to be seen as they once were as sort of harmless and adorable in the way that uh, I think a lot of other folks are afforded um, that that sort of rendering of childhood in a much more extended um, extended way. And so it, it sort of just got me thinking about the implications of uh, black youth and, and black boyhood um, and how it's stripped away so much earlier than, than boyhood is for, for so many other young men. Do you think things have actually changed since you were a boy? Or are they just talk about differently or mass differently? Or are there Band-Aids on? Or have there been genuine changes? Yeah, I, I certainly would not suggest that things are not better. Uh, I, you know, I was born in 88. Um, and so the 80s through the 90s, there was a lot. The war on drugs was um, very much at the sort of forefront of our uh, political discourse and the way that we talked about uh, incarceration, the way that we talked about criminal justice, the way that we talked about race, uh, were not as sophisticated as I believe they are now. They weren't as nuanced as they are now. And so I think the conversation has moved in a direction that is helpful, uh, though obviously uh, many of the, 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 the threats or the violence or the, um, the nature of, you know, racism is interesting because it it's always shifting, right? Sure. It always is evolving and shifting and um, you find different iterations of it at different points in time. And so I think that what uh, 
what institutionalized or systemic racism looks like right now is not necessarily what it looked like in the 2000s sure. or in the 90s or in sure. the 80s. Um, so so I, I, the way that I think about sort of the history of white supremacy and racism generally is that, you know, when I was in math class, um, there, when I was a kid, the, they were trying to explain infinity to us. And they would say, the teacher said, all right, well, you, and I think a lot of people did this exercise, but you start at one end of the classroom. Mm -hmm. and your teacher says, go halfway. And then you walk halfway across the room. And then she says, go halfway again. And you walk halfway and go halfway again. So you're all, and you, so you're all continuously moving, but you never but, ever reach yeah, the wall. At half right? the pace of exactly. the, the previous step. And so, yeah. so I think the, the progress will not look the same as it did in the, in the civil rights movement era. I don't think progress will uh, look the same as it, again, as you kind of mentioned, that the progress is still happening, but it is not as uh, dramatic in, uh, in the way that it manifests itself. But I, I also, so I think that you can continuously get, if the wall is this idea that racism does not exist um, in the United States, I don't know that that place exists. I don't know that a country founded on the premise and predicated on the, the exploitation of black and brown bodies will ever exist uh, as a place completely devoid of that phenomenon because it is so deeply ingrained in the history. I think what we can do is continue to move closer and closer to the wall. And I think that that progress is important. And I don't think that progress is something to be discounted. Um, and I think the work is to like make sure that we keep getting as close to the wall as possible, even in those moments where it feels like you're not actually moving too yeah. much. Yeah. Well, you take a sip or two of your chai tea latte because I don't want to keep you talking the whole time. Um, that makes total sense. Let's talk about your second video, which impacted me in a much different way, in a much greater way, because of the kind of work that I'm doing in this podcast even. So the danger of silence. Um, I loved it. And one of the driving quotes for everything that I do in my life, but this, this project and the things that we're trying to um, grow out of this project, um, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter, mm. right? That's the driving force about, and I've always tried I failed a million and one times, but I've always tried to be that person that isn't, or even if I'm afraid to mm -hmm. speak up and speak out, I figure out ways of overcoming that because I don't want to give in, I don't want to right. live, you know, fearfully. So talk about this poem now, and especially, I mean, it was all impactful. I also want to congratulate you because I was watching the timer on the floor. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. they give you like a four minute, whatever, four minute, 20 seconds, and you ended like three seconds before. It's a very daunting it, timer. It's oh, like I'm sure. Like yeah, it's red. right there. It's yeah. glaring. And I saw it. And as you did your last line, it was saying seven, eight. So you must have ended yeah. right about like three seconds before. So yeah. congrats, because that's a, that's a hard <laughs> thing to do when you're trying. I mean, you're talking about the danger of silence, right? And they get, okay, do that in four and a half minutes. Right. Uh, but you did it. So talk about this this poem, the impact that this video has had, but also there's one line in there toward the end where you're talking about the lady at the gala or the fundraiser that, you know, pats you on the back and says like, we're super grateful that you're, that you're out there teaching all these unintelligent poor kids, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and then you address it at the end where you wish you could tell her exactly that they could walk circles around her. Um, and she watched one, you know, one video of the wire. So the, the idea there is that this has come up in multiple conversations that I've had with people that we need to be better at slowing down, learning more deeply about the issues that we're passionate about, 
passion can only take us so far, right? If we just go on passion, that's what we're seeing on Twitter today, mm -hmm. which I've fallen into more times than I'd like to admit. But you know, we've got these like keyboard warriors and we've got people just shouting and screaming and bitching. And they don't really know what they're shouting, screaming and bitching about, mm -hmm. right? They, they know headlines and they know they can, they can recite a clickbait you know, type headline. Mm -hmm. but they don't really know the deep parts of the issues that they're trying to address. So you're addressing that in this, mm -hmm. in this poem. Yeah. Don't, don't be silent, speak up, speak out, but there has to be some depth to what we're speaking about. Right. And you're obviously there, like you're you know, PhD candidate, you've been awarded all these things because you've properly and intelligently addressed a lot of these things. You don't just go into it, just barking and you know, typing away. So talk about that for a little bit. What, what is our role in, um, just about that poem and then what is our role in knowing about what we're talking about? Yeah, so, so that poem, began, uh, that was written several years ago when I was a high school English teacher in Maryland. And we had a big anti-bullying initiative that was happening. And we, you know, the entire school district was saying it's important for teachers to talk to their students about uh, standing up against verbal and physical abuse and to make sure that our, uh, there had been some incidents in which um, students were, had experienced like some real, uh, some physical abuse and verbal abuse that had like very real mm. and dangerous, violent implications for their lives. And so we had a big initiative as a school and as a district to say, stop, we need to stop bullying. We need to make sure that we stop it in our classrooms, stop it in the hallways, wherever we see it. Um, and to make sure that our students understood that that was their job as well, right? It wasn't just something for the, the teachers and staff to be doing, but something for them to be doing as well. And I had this moment where I was telling my students, I was like, you got to stand up against... Um, even when you're not directly affected, when you see somebody being bullied or seeing somebody uh, or somebody talking about someone else in the lunchroom or all of these different iterations of bullying, um, it is important for you to say something. It's important for you to to not be silent uh, because that makes you complicit in the injustice happening uh, against that that group or individual. And I had this moment where I realized that I was asking my students to do something that I wasn't necessarily consistent in doing myself. Mm. And as for any of us who have worked with young people or been parents or been educators, we know that asking your kids or asking your students to do something that you are not actually doing yourself kind of gives you this like strange, uh, icky feeling um, about sort of a compromised morality in some ways. And so, you know, I realized that there were so many moments in my own life where I was not saying anything uh, because the issue did not directly affect me or people that I care about. And I realized that that is not uh, aligned with the person that I want my, my students to be um, or the people that I want my students to be and the person that I want to be as an example for my students. And so that poem really began as a means of holding myself accountable to say, it is hard. And mm -hmm. I think that that's the important part of this conversation that often is missing. I think sometimes we can say, um, you know, if you don't say anything, you are complicit in the injustice of millions of people or, and then we go immediately to like, you need to, so speak out at every opportunity. Right. Um, and there's not an, an, an acknowledgement that it is, that it is a very difficult thing to do, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you can, being a, a middle schooler in the cafeteria and everybody's, you know, making fun of, um, you know, somebody for certain clothes they wear or for any other reason, it is hard to be the person in a group of kids to say, hey guys, that's not okay, that's not really cool, because it immediately ostracizes you or you fear that it will ostracize you from that group. And the same thing when you're an adult, right? The same when we adults get into the same uh, uh, 
uh, trap of groupthink and sort of a mobbish mm-hmm. mentality. Uh, and, you know, we see it on Twitter all the time, right, that uh, that kids do oftentimes. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that it's difficult um, and that, that is an, it is an ongoing process, right? In this sort of movement for black lives in the, in the last several years, there's been this nomenclature of like stay woke, right? Everybody mm-hmm, stay woke, mm-hmm. suggestive of, um, you know, this notion that people have reached a certain level of critical consciousness that allows them to see uh, the world for what it is and not what um, has been sort of uh, espoused and propagated um, around issues of race, gender, sexual orientation, and the sort of larger systemic and institutional yeah. issues in the world. Um, and I think it's catchy and I think it's great. Uh, I also think it is not as helpful in outlining the way in which that process actually takes place because I think if it were more honest, it would be about, it would be called like stay waking up. It would be mm. this sort of like, it would suggest that it is an ongoing process. Yeah, it would suggest go. that it is, uh, it, it, it demands uh, proactivity, right? Because every day you have to wake up and say, even though, you know, so for me as a, as a straight man, um, I am, I can wake up and it is very easy for me to be complicit or, uh, or, or not f- push back against systems of uh, patriarchy, systems of homo- um, homophobia. And if I'm not purposeful, am I, if I'm not proactive, if I'm not constantly thinking about who I am and if the, th- the things that I'm seeing in the world are aligned or not aligned with my values in accordance with those issues, um, then, then it can be like very easy for me to sort of just, you know, oppression is kind of like this lazy, like the, at the water parks, they have those lazy rivers, right? Yeah. Oppression is like the kind of lazy river. You can just sit on your tube and you're not doing anything, um, but you are still benefiting from the current that it moves. But like to say, I'm going to step up and actually walk against this current is something that demands a sort of active mentality. So all that's to say, um, it is essential that we recognize that they are, especially people who are not part of marginalized groups of, of different identities, that it is essential that we recognize that it, how, how important it is to uh, stand up against issues that do not directly affect us. Um, and all, at the same time, recognizing that that is a hard thing, that it is not an easy thing to do. Um, and I think we can hold both of those things at once. And so that poem and that TED Talk is trying to wrestle with the, that sort of strange duality. Um, and, and also just, you know, something that's not addressed in the TED Talk, but I think is important is that silence. This is talking about what it means to be silent in the face of oppression, in the face of injustice. Um, but there are also moments where, where silence is actually okay. Mm. Right? There's, and I think that, Again, this is something you see on social media and things like that. There's a fine line between feeling like you need to say something about everything and then uh, saying something that you're informed about, right? And I'm where I'm, and it's a, a, a blurry line because you don't want to say that, like, you have to have taken a critical race theory class to speak up about racism. I don't think that that is what we want to suggest. Um, but at the same way that, like, you know, I'm not going to necessarily share espouse like the way that I think we can defeat ISIS in Syria. Right. Um, even though I have thoughts and opinions on it, I am not an expert in that space. And so to, uh, to share ideas as if I, as if I were, um, can be, can be tricky and can be dangerous, but at the same time, you don't want to create a precedent where people feel 
um, that they can't share their ideas on things they're not necessarily experts in. So I think it just demands a level of thoughtfulness that we often continuously carry. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes total sense. I, th I think there's a lot of, at least what I've encountered, and tell me if you have or not, with people, there's a level of, it's, it, a lot of it comes down to laziness. Hmm. Um, not, not proactive or like, oh, I want to be lazy in this area, but it takes a lot of work to become informed. Mm. It takes a lot of work to stay waking up. Right. I really, really like that because you're, you're absolutely correct. The stay woke, it's a fine thing. And I've, I've, I like it, I yeah. like it a lot, but it, it implies that I am awake and that's just gonna continue whether I work at it or not. Right, it implies and, that there's a threshold that you have now crossed. Right. And that the work at, after And it's that not that time. way. It takes, it takes reading books and engaging with people and watching lectures and giving lectures and writing books and mm -hmm. just really engaging it. Because it, 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 these, are, these are complex issues right. that there is no one right answer for any of these things, right? And so, I, yeah, I really like, um, yeah, I like those thoughts. So tell me, you've, you've, put your thought, you've put your finger on some issues that you're passionate about or for the sake of this conversation that you give a damn about. Mm -hmm. Can you name some of those though in a, maybe a one, two, three list? And what are, you, what are the ways that you're engaging in those things? And mm -hmm. how, are, how are you excited to continue developing that? Hmm. Uh, well, so right now I'm working on my dissertation from my PhD, which is about the educational experiences of people who are incarcerated. So I worked um, with men who were serving life sentences in Massachusetts for several mm. years before I moved down to DC. Uh, and I taught creative writing. And working in the prison, for anyone who's worked in prison, I think they'll, they'll tell you a, a sort of similar thing that it completely recalibrates the way you think about incarceration. And it completely recalibrates the way you think about this notion of uh, who deserves or does not deserve to be incarcerated because part of what you recognize is that but for the arbitrary nature of circumstance, but for the arbitrary nature of birth, uh, mm. I could have so easily been yeah. the person in that jail cell um, instead, of the, instead of them. And you realize that for the, I mean, there's 2.3 million people in prison and jail right now. Goodness. Um, so much of Just that. Just in America. In America. Um, 20, we have 5% of the world's population, 25% of the prison population. Um, but the, so much of that is so deeply correlated to poverty, right? It is the trajectory that poverty puts young people on is fundamentally different than the trajectory that middle and upper middle class young people experience. Um, not because one is more capable or deserving than another, but simply because, um, again, but for the arbitrary nature of like who, what parent you're born to, what neighborhood you're born into, what school you get to attend, um, that puts your life on a different trajectory that you may not necessarily have, um, uh, you, that, that might, that is not a sort of this like Calvinistic destined, predestination sure. type thing, right? It is, you know, so for me, I, real, I go in there and I realize that, you know, if I grew up in, in poverty and I had a, a mother who was addicted to drugs or a father who wasn't around, um, it could be very easy for me to uh, sit in geometry class and say, this actually has no, uh, doesn't feel like it is relevant to the very real and material circumstances I'm experiencing now, that like my siblings are hungry, that I, my, none of my parents can work, so I need to get money. Um, as a young black person, all we know, the social science um, for young black people without high school degrees is that it becomes incre uh, incredibly difficult for them to get 
employment uh, because of assumed criminality and different things like that. So oftentimes people are either in jobs that don't pay enough or they're in jobs uh, or they can't get the job in the first place. And so then you oftentimes find yourself engaging in the illicit uh, mm. market, right? You mm. like need, you say there's a sense of urgency because there are um, very real things that I need. I need food. I need shelter. I need sure. all of these different things. And so I need to do what I need to do to get those um, in any way I can. And so people then, whether it be selling drugs or what have you, uh, and so if you're selling drugs, then you say, oh, well, I need, uh, you often find yourself in a situation in which you need protection. And so you might get a gun because you need to protect yourself from what is a dangerous set of circumstances. If you, and then from there, if you're arrested with a, a gun that you illegally own, whether or not you've used it or not used it, it's considered a violent offense, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and that's, yeah. you know, that's a whole different conversation right. about the way we think about violent versus nonviolent. Yep offenders um, because there's this sort of discourse in the mass incarceration conversation that suggests that if we just release all the nonviolent drug offenders, then somehow mass incarceration will end. But that's less than 20% of people who are in prison, in state prisons specifically. Um, so that's to say, you know, you could, that person could get arrested and then be sentenced to spend 15 years to life in prison simply because they recognized that there was a sense of urgency about how to fulfill a set of very real needs that they had for themselves and their family that they were unable to do in a way that we consider to be um, aligned with what, uh, how young people should be navigating their lives. So that's, oftentimes what young people are doing is responding very rationally to a set of irrational circumstances that they are a part of. And I think that we oftentimes forget the context that creates a sense of uh, desperation that leads young people to do so many of the things that put them on a trajectory to prison. Um, And that's, you know, that's Mm. without taking into account the uh, things that, you know, were illuminated in the Baltimore DOJ report, the Ferguson DOJ report about the disparate um, policing practices and sentencing practices and things of that nature. So, uh, So I'm thinking a lot about people serving uh, life sentences specifically because I think that that is a group of folks who we don't often uh, discuss or think about in the larger mass incarceration conversation. It can often be people on death row because we're trying to abolish the death penalty, or it can be people who are quote unquote nonviolent drug offenders, but we're not often talking about the folks in the middle. And there are 160,000 people who are serving life sentences in the United States. And that doesn't include the people who are sentenced to these sort of de facto life sentences of, you know, 99 years and things like that. And so, uh, so that is something that's on my mind now and specifically how they experience educational opportunities. I'm also thinking a lot about the way that we are just generally how we discuss the metrics of efficacy in education. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I, so I taught high school English for several right. years before starting graduate school. Um, and, and this is a conversation that's been had, I mean, for, for decades now, but uh, really pushing us to think beyond these sort of, um, sort of specifically and more rigid quantitative outcomes around uh, what, what, is indicative of an education being um, effective or not and moving beyond spreadsheets, moving on test scores and thinking about, you know, there's a lot of studies that have begun to come out that are thinking about the long-term impacts of different types of education, uh, specifically like the arts and the humanities and what, how does that affect people's lives beyond the immediacy of, uh, you know, a test that they take at the end of the year, but what are the sort of long-term outcomes? Uh, You know, are people staying out of prison? Are people, getting jobs and employment? Are people, um, 
you know, uh, experiencing sort of longer term indicators of success that are not necessarily correlated with whether or not they got proficient on, uh, on a test. You've mentioned several times that you uh, were a teacher, a teacher to young people, and now you're a teacher to all different types of people. When you were a teacher to young people, um, I, I saw this kind of mini documentary, Tell the Truth, um, on Vimeo. Uh, very impactful. Lo I love seeing students articulate some of this stuff, you know, into the camera, and because it's, you know it's not you telling them what to see, like this is them, you know, really communicating it. What is the importance of when 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 children are younger, especially in, in you know in the school you were at, a lot of the issues that you were addressing were for you know like children of color and just the things they were dealing with, but just in general for for my kids that I, I'm Hispanic, but you know for all intents and purposes, you know I have I have white kids, and mm -hmm. for for my kids even like what what is the value? Um, of getting kids early, in other words, like teaching them, like teaching them stuff early, exposing them to um, real issues and problems and solutions to those problems early on, versus waiting until they're adults and they've they've accumulated bad habits and bad practices and bad ways of thinking. Um, yeah, what's the what's the value of that, and what can we do both as parents, as or as friends of you know, parents that have kids, like maybe we don't have the kids, but and I'm, I'm speaking to all the listeners now, maybe we don't have the kids, but our friends do. What's the, what's the role there and, and with what intensity should we approach that? Because, um, yeah, anyway, go, go ahead and answer that. So I think a lot about this in the context of race and racism. Um, and I think oftentimes people uh, have this idea that racism is something that should not be addressed with young children until they reach a certain age. And it's interesting because we don't have that same idea around uh, the environment, for instance, right? Yeah. But what we do is we scaffold the conversation. So we don't, you don't go to a, a first grader and you say, well, within the next 30 years, Malaysia is going to be underground, like underwater because the icebergs are melting and millions of people right. are going to die and perish, you know, have a good day at school. Um, instead, what we do is say, it's important for you to recycle. It's important for you to turn the faucet off when you're brushing your teeth. It's important for you to uh, not waste electricity. And we sort of have ways of talking about the importance of taking care of the environment that are uh, appropriate for their age without making it this sort of doomsday phenomenon. And I think that we can do the same sort of thing around race and racism, right? I think that, you know, you don't go to a first grader and say, uh, white supremacy is a ubiquitous force that has been with us since 1619 when the first slaves came and might always be with us. Good luck on your test today. That's right. right. Um, instead, what we, you know, what we can say is, you know, uh, we can begin to address the differences so that those differences feel normative. Um, you know, why your friend Jane looks like this. This is because her parents are uh, black or her parents are Latino or her, mm -hmm. and th that means this. And, you know, there's, uh, while we have very different histories, what, cause also what you want to do is not, I think the, what happens is people often say, oh, we have to teach kids colorblindness and be like, and like, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter if you're black or white or brown, or I don't think we should be having that conversation about it doesn't matter. I think we should say we have like, people have very different real histories, yep. uh, very different cultures and all of those cultures are important and, yep. and they matter. And again, so pushing back against this, this idea that to create a system of racial equity, one has to erase the idea of race, right? Uh, and I think that that's a false choice. We can talk to kids about um, 
race and racism and and even even say that like because you know because of Jane's uh the color of Jane's skin like her this the world often doesn't offer her as many opportunities as and so just make it so that when they encounter things when they're older it doesn't feel like a a sort of world uh a completely complete recalibration yeah. of their their worlds and i think that generally the way that you know so what i always think about is how we don't have these conversations with black children or white children or brown children, Asian children, or anything. And what happens is that, you know, in my case, I worked at a school that was 97% black and brown kids. And hmm. uh, they would come to school and, you know, there would be uh, some, I, we had a moment where um, one of our students was shot. Uh, and, and it was this like horrific experience and everybody was uh, deeply experiencing a lot of despair. Um, and I remember one of my students said, you know, this is terrible, but this is also just how it is here, Mr. Smith. Like mm. these things just happen. And that was a moment where it was it, clear to me, based on the, the rest of the conversation that we had, that, that he, as well as many of my other students, didn't have the, the tools to understand that the reason that their community exists the way that it does is not because of the people in those community, but instead what has been done to that community over decades and decades and centuries, right? So, it, so if you don't understand the way in which your community has been stripped of resources that have historically been given to other hmm. communities, if you don't understand, uh, it's not necessarily that a student has to understand the nuances of property tax or the nuances <laughs> of redlining and the history of discrimination in the New Deal, but they should understand that the reason that there are no uh, not many grocery stores in that community, mm. the reason that the projects or the homes in that community look the way that they do, the reason that the school looks the way that it does is not because of a sort of cultural deficit that exists with the folks in those communities, but it's instead because of like very real public policy and political decisions that have been made by people that have deprioritized that community as it compares to its counterparts. And I think what happens when you do that, you restore a sense of agency to these young people, right? You recognize that the world is a social construction and thus can be reconstructed and deconstructed and made into something new. And the conditions, the material conditions in which you exist are not in inevitability, but are instead uh, reflective of choices that have been made and a different set of choices can be made moving forward. So how, that's very helpful. How, so you live in DC. You're, I assume you're gonna continue living in DC or an urban setting. Mm -hmm. I've always lived in uh, urban settings, big cities. We're trying to move to New York City right now. And I'm doing that 90% for my kids. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it for a lot of reasons, but mm -hmm. one, you know, but I've, I've traveled the world. I've, been, I've lived or spent time in 30 plus countries, 15 years outside of the US. And I'm so grateful for the worldview that I have because of that. But not everybody listening, and most Americans don't live in these cities, right? They don't live in, you know, you're talking about like what grocery stores, why, why this, why that? Why does this place look like this? Why did that happen? A lot of families and people listening don't get to experience that. Mm -hmm. They live in, you know, towns of 50,000 or less. Um, all their neighbors look like them or they live in rural. And so their next neighbor's two miles over. Mm -hmm. How, and they're not necessarily just going to pick up Maybe, maybe some of them should, but they're not necessarily going to pick up and move to X city so that they can be right. in this, right? But maybe they still want to learn. Um, and so I'll, I'll couple that with my, something else that I wanted to mention. Most um, of the people listening are white, mm -hmm. and that's great, and that's fine. I'm not saying that's a bad, I'm just pointing out that they're mostly white. Mm -hmm. What are the best ways that we can learn this stuff? 
right? What are the best ways that we can engage with it? Either because of the skin of our color and we don't have the history behind us. We don't, maybe we don't have a lot of, you know, black friends or Latino friends or Asian friends that have experienced these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Or we just don't live in a place, you know, that it's, it's, it's everybody looks like me where I live. Um, what are the ways that, uh, or should some of them get up and move to these places? What, what, are, your, what are your thoughts on yeah. that? So I should also say that, you know, so the story I shared was specific around my student and what it means for students like that to understand for themselves that they are not the reason for their uh, poverty. They are not the reason for the difficulties they may be experiencing in their lives, but actually these are the result of like socio-historical and political decisions that have been made over time. I also think that it is as essential, if not more essential, that students in other communities or students who are all white or students who are all affluent similarly learn that because otherwise what happens is that they begin to create caricatures of the people living in those settings, right? So like, you know, uh, for someone living in, we mentioned Tacoma, Washington, I don't know how many brown people live in, I mean, you know, but so let's let's talk, think of a a place where the majority of the community is white and relatively affluent. Um, It is, I think, essential that these conversations are being had by those parents and by those teachers as well, because what you don't want to do is often what happens now is that a lot of white folks grow up believing this idea that the reason that certain communities look the way that they do um, as compared to their own is reflective of a, uh, a cultural deficiency of a group of people. And that's how you get these caricatures of, uh, you know, Latino folks as lazy or black people as violent or any of these things. And we're not having real conversations about the structural realities that create these phenomena. So I think that, you know, this is not something, that conversation is not something limited only to the people who are experiencing it. And I don't think you necessarily have to live or even have been to uh, an urban setting, so to speak, to to have a conversation about why, you know. And, and so, for example, the president keeps talking about Chicago, right? He keeps bringing up Chicago and saying, like, the... Uh, the gun violence in Chicago is horrific. And I'm going to send federal, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, federal um, troops in or federal uh, national guards. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is very easy for to let that statement or that idea that is actually a, an idea a lot of people have exist on its own, um, and to not sort of dig beneath the surface, right? So it's but what what's a more meaningful conversation to have is if you say. This is gun violence is is taking place in Chicago, and it is uh, deeply uh, saddening, which I think we can all agree on, right? Nobody is looking at gun violence in Chicago and saying it is not a big deal. Um, what we can do is say, ask questions about why this is happening. So right. we can ask questions about segregate the history of segregation. That's what's lacking in, in that conversation, exactly, right? And I think that my push and what I always try to push educators to do is to say. Take these moments, like these moments in which, like you, like you know, all these high school students, they they are their parents watch CNN or MSNBC or Fox or whatever, and they're hearing the same things um, that folks are saying about these places that that everyone else is. What does it mean to take that and to say, all right, we're going to actually uh, sort of do a deeper dive around what this means? Because if you don't, all people begin to see is that like. Black people in Chicago are violent and kill each other, and that 
lends itself to a whole host yeah. of stereotypes yep. that continue to be fulfilled. It perpetuates. Exactly. Yeah. And, and instead saying there's this history of housing segregation in Chicago. Yep. There's this history of uh, economic destabilization. That is, there's this history of uh, ter- uh, insufficient public housing and then public housing that has been torn down. And I mean, so you can go on and on and on about the reason that certain, like very, it's a very specific set of communities in Chicago that experience this violence and that those, the realities of those communities are deeply tied to, again, public policy decisions that have been made over the course of the past century and a half uh, that have made that city look the way that it does. And if you're not having a conversation about that, then we're having an insufficient conversation around um, the issue itself. And oftentimes the thing is that we never, we don't dig beneath the surface to try to understand um, why these things are happening. But if you if you understand history, then you can understand that like everything, all the inequality that we see in the world actually makes sense. Not makes sense in that it is, it is, it is just or it's okay, but makes sense because you are able to understand what led to it. So much I want to bounce up. I, I, I won't though. I'll, I'll restrain myself. I just, I, I think the, I'm, I'm glad you pointed out some of those things about our current president and the way, the way that he wants to, that he sees this fixing itself. Um, or that he wants to fix it. And the reality is that that's what, what he's proposing and what many people think is way easier than the actual solutions, mm. than the actual solutions, one of them being uh, mentoring and hand-holding mm. and hugs and being there day after day, mm. right? Like just being, yeah. being there and see, and I know this is not the only yeah. answer, I'm just saying it's one of them, yeah. is actually, it's, it's hard effing work. Yeah. And, and it's much easier to say, we're gonna go in there and we're gonna push our way in and push these problems out. But if the, the, if the life, if the soul, if the heart doesn't change, right? It's just, it'll keep, it'll keep going. And, it, and it, it reduces your capacity for empathy and it reduces, yeah. and, and what a city like Chicago needs is not federal, the National Guard coming in. What it needs is, is more jobs. What it yeah. needs is more hospitals. What it needs is, Better mental health care, what it yep. needs, you know. So, but if you if you are continuously, implicitly or explicitly dehumanizing a group of people, mm-hmm. then the the capacity for empathy that those looking on will have, uh, and the the nature of the discussion will be more so about uh, a sort of uh, it will it will sound more like an occupation than it will. Uh, will uh what we would want for our own community or our own cities or our own families right you know what if you give people jobs um and if you give people income and if you give people health care and if you give people food the nature of violence in that city and in every city like completely changes right Hmm. and i think that that is why, I, why is that not part of the conversation in the same way that uh, sending the National Guard in or would we need more police on the street or um, and, and, you know, we don't that can be for another podcast, right. like the nature of policing and yeah. like whether what that should look like. Um, but but I think it is important to uh, ask ourselves why certain fixes are constantly proposed around uh, issues of violence and poverty that aren't actually addressing the fundamental realities of uh, that create this violence in the first place. Yeah. 
What does the future hold for Clint Smith the third? What's what are you excited about? What's what's ahead? Yeah, well, my son is is six weeks old, so I am excited. So for many congrats! All the the milestones. Thank you. Of uh, you know, he's starting to smile at us, and mm. so you know, I'm excited for him laughing and him talking and um, him sleeping more than an hour and a half at a time. <laughs> uh, It'll come. There's <laughs> hope. I promise. Uh, so you know, that is he is the center of my world right now, and, mm. and I have. And, you know, it's one of those things they say being a, a parent uh, changes you in ways you never understand. And it sounds cliche, but it's just so it's true. So, true. Um, so, you know, he is is what's on my mind 24-7 these days. Uh, and I think he also, what he does is makes the work more urgent, right? Because you, you think about what kind of world you want to leave for your kids. Absolutely. What kind of world you want them to live in. And yep. it also holds you... In a similar way to being a teacher, but more, this is more immediate and sort of more emotionally visceral is, is you, you want to be the best version of yourself for him, right? Mm -hmm. And it's this sort of, this new type of accountability that I've not experienced before, right? In terms of making sure that I'm moving closer to the aspirational version of myself mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm not, uh, and I'm continuously, again, being proactive and thoughtful about how I navigate the world and who I want to be in the world. Um, and so, you know, th and that shapes the nature of my intellectual and scholarly work, my artistic work. Um, and, you know, there have been, uh, I had my first book of poetry come out last September. Hmm. Um, I have like the very rough, uh, uh, a rough template of what a second manuscript might look like. And, and he is, um, thinking about fatherhood and what, what that means and mm. uh, is sort of the centerpiece of it. And I think it, I mean, it shapes how I see every like geopolitical, you know, I can't look at, uh, you know, what's happening in, in Syria, even in the same way that I did before. Cause like I, these are, I cannot begin to fathom what it is like to like lose your, your child. Yeah. Or like, and then, then just to, it it just has, it's changed everything, right? Yeah. And this is a, and that's a whole different. I mean, I have a lot to say about our our capacity uh, for empathy to those in places like that where yeah. violence feels so normative, um, and why there's uh, so much outrage, rightful outrage around uh, people being killed in Paris, but you know people being killed in uh, Beirut or Lebanon or. Um, yeah, Syria, Iraq, Syria, yeah. Iraq, it feels, you know, we're more able to easily uh, digest it yeah. in a way that feels yeah. unsafe. And I and I've count myself in that. And I have to continuously yep. say why 100 people were just killed in a suicide bomb in Iraq. Why am I not as viscerally upset yeah. as as when somebody was killed in Belgium? And you, yep. ha and you have to, again, that's why going back, you know, coming full circle, that's why you have, this is, this idea of like being a critical and, uh, observer and participant in the world is not a threshold you cross. It is every day reminding stay yourself. Up. Yes, stay waking up to push yourself to think about in what ways you are complicit in and perpetuating um, a system that affords uh, more humanity to one life than, than it does to another. That's fantastic. Before I ask the very last question, where can people... Uh, find out more about you and what do you want them to look for, right? Because, you, you know, they could type in Clint Smith and a lot yeah. of stuff will come up. What do you want them to look for? 
Yeah. Uh, so you can find me all social medias at Clint Smith the Third, Clint Smith I I I, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, websites also Clint Smith I I I. You know, I I what I hope for my work is that it is it can help people feel seen mm. um, who may not see themselves reflected in other spaces. Um, but then that can also be illuminative for folks who may not necessarily understand. I think that that's what, what art and, and writing at its best does. It is both uh, something that makes people feel understood. Um, you know, Baldwin has that, that famous quote where he talks about, you know, I thought that my, all my pain and my suffering um, mm. made me alone in the world and that I read Dostoevsky and then I read all these books and realized that uh, there were so many people who, who were experiencing the same thing I was, right? It's and so I think huge. That's, um, that's so important. But I also think that there's something to be said for, you know, reading something that completely changes the way that you uh, see and understand the world. And I think that that is uh, as important, um, if not more, to, to cultivating a world where like empathy is, is at the center of um, everything we do. Love it. The last question is uh, a hugely but hypothetical, it's a hugely important but hypothetical question. Uh, for some reason, when you die, which is going to be a long, long time from now, uh, hopefully, uh, with all your family and friends and fans and your son and your wife, like they're all there mm-hmm. to honor uh, the life that you lived, I'm going to give your eulogy. Uh, I'm going to speak your legacy over the people that have gathered to both mourn and celebrate your life. What do you hope that I would say on that day? Man, um, I hope that you would say that he was kind. Mm. I hope that you would say that he was good to people. Mm. I hope that you would say he like really did his best to live a life of honesty and compassion, even when it was hard. Mm. That's, That's good. I hope. That's good. Yeah. Well, I hope that is said over you. I hope day. so. Thank you so much for joining me. And please thank your wife for letting you get away on a Sunday morning <laughs> uh, and your six, six-week-old son for letting you get away on a Sunday morning for an hour to spend with me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks. Friends, thank you so much for joining Clint and me today. I hope you were encouraged and challenged by our conversation. Follow Clint everywhere on social media at Clint Smith III. That's at Clint Smith III. And check out his website, also clintsmithiii.com. And please buy a copy of his collection of poetry called Counting Descent. You could snag yourself a copy on Amazon today. As I begin to wrap up, here's a review that Gino from Philadelphia left on Apple Podcasts about our show. He says this, and now for something positive. In a world gone wrong, it's great to hear the stories of people who are doing good. Nick's passion and enthusiasm for people comes through and adds to the enjoyment of this podcast. Gino, thanks so much for that generous review. If you like this podcast and want to continue seeing us make podcasts for long time to come, here are a few ways you can help us. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell a friend they should listen. Share an episode on social media, or you can give a few dollars a month to us 
by going to patreon.com forward slash let's give a damn. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash let's give a damn. And you can begin giving at the giving level of your choice. That helps us tremendously as right now, no one involved is getting paid. These are really dollars that are going to covering production needs, travel costs, so on and so forth. Okay, our time together has come to a close for this week. That's all. You are awesome. I thank you for being here. I hope you're having fun and learning a lot. Go give some dams this week, my friends. I love you. Can't wait to hang out with you next week. Bye for now. Bye for now.